Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Welcome to Starship Sofa, part of the District of Wonders Network. Featuring Tales to Terrify, Crime City Central, and Protecting Project Pulp. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. This is the Starship Sofa. Everybody, welcome. Hello and welcome to show 251. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello everyone. I hope everyone is fine and dandy. We have Gene Wolfe today, a story by none other than Gene Wolfe. How cool is that? Tell you what's coming up in today's show. We have everything by Morgan Saletta, which is on the topic of floating cities. Then we have Main Fiction, which is King Rat by Gene Wolfe. Then we have First Chapters right at the end, Ghost Hand by Ripley Patton. We'll just, we'll get straight, we'll jump straight in with, you know, Morgan Saletta's Everything article. And this has just turned out to be just, I'm loving it, to be quite honest. And I'm putting this down to kind of, we played Morgan Saletta's last article, which was on the Peter Watts story, Malik, you know, on that show, and I can't remember for the life of us what show number it was. But I'm putting that, Morgan's little article was down to kind of, you know, it must have been a factor in the kind of huge download figures because there was loads of comments I've seen around about, you know, Morgan's, air, it was all to do with airships. And like I say, this little article by Morgan is just, he's, he's starting to kind of just gear it up there now. And it's everything that's exciting about science fiction. If you like science fiction, do you know what I mean? And it's just it's marvellous. So Morgan, floating city, sir, take it away. All Care to speculate? Following the overwhelmingly positive feedback from my last installment, Airships in Science and Science Fiction, I've decided to do somewhat of a follow-up episode. Today we're going to be talking about flying airbases, cities in the clouds, and islands in the sky. 
But first, I want to share some of the feedback I got in the form of some great suggestions regarding science fiction and airships. Adam Pratt, who's doing the Cheapskates review on Starship Sofa, had some really good recommendations. He pointed me in the direction of Scott Westerfeld's Leviathan trilogy, set in a steampunk alternate history of World War I featuring dirigibles, as well as giant genetically modified living airships. In fact, I've eyeballed Westerfeld's books in the bookshop a couple of times, and given Prack's recommendation, am going to go out and get them. They look like a lot of fun. Adam also pointed me in the direction of a great short story called The Echoner Alternative, written by James L. Cambius, which was featured on episode 334 of Escape Pod at escapepod.com and narrated by Mer Lafferty. This is a great story for anyone fascinated by the dream of airships and mentions all the great airships, including some I didn't mention in last month's installment, like the British R101. Who could resist a story that seamlessly melds time travel, airships, and alternate histories in one great story? Murr has kindly agreed to let me give you a little taste of the story. The Hindenburg swung gently on the mast at Lakehurst as the sky over New Jersey turned to purple twilight. All the passengers, the reporters, the newsreel men were gone. A couple of sailors stood guard beneath the big ship to enforce the no-smoking rule. John Cavalli waited until the watchman below had turned away, then slid down the stern rope to the ground. He hunkered down next to the big rolling anchor weight for a couple of minutes, then hurried off into the darkness beyond the floodlights. Once he was clear, Cavalli stopped to peel off the Russian Army Arctic Commando suit he'd been wearing ever since the Zeppelin had lifted off from Frankfurt am Main. It had kept him warm as he hid among the gas cells with his IR goggles and fire extinguisher, but now, in the warmth of a spring evening, it was stifling. He hit the return button on his wristband and disappeared. "'You can't make big changes,' said the instructor of the first day of temporal studies class. He was a very laid-back physicist recruited from California in the 2020s. "'That's the most important rule. The folks we work for are the result of a particular set of historical events. Change history too much, and their probability level drops below 50%. If that happens, all this, his gesture encompassed the time center, goes away and we're out of a job, if we even exist anymore. A student in the row ahead of Cavalli raised his hand. What about making little changes? Little changes are fine. We make little changes all the time. Most of them are things like making long-term investments, buying up art treasure for safekeeping, keeping species from going extinct, that kind of thing. You're going to learn all about gauging the effects of changes, avoiding heterodynes and chaotic points, and when it's okay to step on butterflies. Cavalli was listening, but in the margin of his notebook he was doodling airships. Once again, that was James L. Cambius's The Echoner Alternative, read by Mer Lafferty. Head on over to escapepod.com for a listen. And now, on to flying airbases, cities in the clouds, and islands in the sky. I think I'll begin with flying airbases. I spoke about the real-life flying aircraft carriers, the U.S. Navy's airships, the Akron and the Macon, briefly in last installment. And I think these airships probably inspired the idea of flying aircraft carriers in science fiction. Fans of the Marvelverse and viewers of Josh Whedon's Avengers movie were treated to the latest iteration of S.H.I.E.L.D.'s helicarrier, designed by Stark Industries, which originally appeared in Strange Tales number 135 in August 1965. Another early and influential example of the floating airbase is a cloud base of Jerry Anderson's Captain Scarlet and the Mysterons TV series from the 1960s, 
in which the organization Spectrum fights the evil Martian Mysterons. Captain Scarlet, although marionette and model-based, is much more adult in theme than its precedent and better-known Thunderbirds. The Spectrum's cloud base is a sort of flying aircraft carrier that hovers in the high atmosphere and serves as both an aerial headquarters and launching pad for the squadron of female pilots known as the Angels. In this excerpt from episode 31 of Captain Scarlet, Attack on Cloud Base, the Mysterons are launching a devastating attack on the cloud base. It's no good, Colonel. We're finished. The port jets are out of action and the rest are losing power. Cloud Base will crash in about two minutes. Are you all right, Captain Blue? Yes. Yes, sir. It's just my arm. I think it's broken. The lieutenant is dead. Ah, the situation's hopeless. Put on a power jet pack and abandon Cloud Base. I'm sorry, Colonel. I, I can't make it. Both Marvel's Helicarrier and Captain Scarlet's Cloud Base have been influential in the design of later science fiction air bases, and similarities to both can be seen in the Royal Navy's Flying Carrier in Sky Captain in the World of Tomorrow, commanded by Frankie Cook, played by Angelina Jolie, as well as in the unit's flying aircraft carrier, the Valiant, in the new Doctor Who series. But while flying airbases are cool, nothing quite says a science fiction, or for that matter, fantasy world, like a flying city or a floating island in the sky. For my generation, and I dare say many listeners of all ages, when I say city in the clouds, probably the first image that pops into mind is Cloud City from George Lucas's The Empire Strikes Back. The image of the Millennium Falcon flying toward this glistening mining city set floating in the clouds of the planet Bespin is one of the many indelibly imprinted on my mind's eye from this movie all the more so by the witty dialogue taking place in the cabin of the Falcon as they approach the planet, Lando's greeting of Han, and the betrayal which comes to light as Lando takes them on this tour of the facility. So you're part of the mining guild then? No, not actually. Our operation is small enough not to be noticed, which is advantageous for everybody since our customers are anxious to avoid attracting attention to themselves. Aren't you afraid the Empire is going to find out about this little operation? Shut you down? It's always been a danger, but it looms like a shadow over everything we've built here. But things have developed that'll ensure security. I've just made a deal that'll keep the Empire out of here forever. But the idea of a floating city, or a city in the clouds, is much older than the Empire Strikes Back. And if we overlook biblical notions of a heavenly new Jerusalem, date back to Jonathan Swift's Gulliver's Travels, published in 1726. Gulliver's Travels, as it was originally written, was a moral satire of human nature and society, and Swift's satirical wit was aimed at scientists, politicians, philosophers, and his fellow countrymen alike. Unfortunately, most modern readers are probably more familiar with the Bodlerized version, that is, the version which Thomas Bodler, yes, he whose name lives on in infamy, turned into a children's book for 19th century Victorians, along with his censored versions of Shakespeare. In one of Gulliver's Travels, he is taken aboard the city of Laputa, home to a society which values science, the arts, and knowledge above all else, but which is incapable of putting their knowledge to practical use, although their flying city, levitated by the use of magnets, is pretty impressive. There have been several movie adaptations of Gulliver's Travels, and animated versions as well, but the most faithful to the original, in that it actually portrays all four of Gulliver's different voyages, is director Charles Sturridge's 1996 adaptation starring Ted Danson of Cheers as Gulliver. And before you laugh, what a great Gulliver he makes. 
This is an excellent movie, which I hadn't seen until doing the research for this installment, and it's frankly really good, well worth a view. In this scene, Gulliver is on the floating city of Laputa when the king decides to wage war on his wife, who lives on the ground and is refusing to pay her tribute in food to him. Swift's depiction of the city of Laputa dropping rocks may have been the first description of aerial bombardment ever. Well, the next collecting point is Empress Minodi's, my mother's estate. But when we get there, quite another matter. Look apprehensive, Your Highness. I just know there'll be trouble. Mother and father disagree about everything. She's a very down-to-earth woman. Father's always had his head in the clouds, so to speak. They've lived apart for quite a while. I had a very unhappy childhood. Your Highness, what's happening now? Oh, I was afraid of this. My mother's refusing to send up any brain taxes. Come on. Father. If it's war she wants, it's war she'll get. I'm applying my massive intellect to the matter. I don't think Mother wants war. She simply doesn't think it's right we should take all her food. Not, not that I, I know anything. We shall position ourselves over her land and deprive them of rain until the crops wither and die. <laughs> I am a genius. Isn't there a river running through the royal estate, Father? I knew that. The Raja and his intellectuals debated the right course of action while the island bore down on the Minodi estate. I wonder what my idiot husband will do now. I have it! We must bomb them! Bomb, mother? Bomb your wife? Bombs away! Lovers of Miyazaki and Studio Ghibli already know that their films feature some of the coolest airships and flying machine designs around, and may remember that the floating island in The Castle in the Sky was also called Laputa, in tribute to Swift. It's Laputa, a floating island. An island that floats in the sky? Yep. Most people think it's just a legend, but my dad actually saw it. Nobody believed him. I am going to prove that my dad was no liar. Look, my stone's glowing. It's been in my family as long as I can remember. That crystal is extremely powerful. Mighty, come back here! There are pirates chasing us, and the army's right behind them. I want that crystal! Somebody's got to protect your friend. Hmm? It's my fault getting you mixed up in all of this. Are you kidding? This is the most exciting thing that's ever happened to me. Like many of Miyazaki's films, The Castle in the Sky is both a fun adventure as well as a nuanced moral tale involving themes of humanity's relationship to nature and technology, which is much less black and white than the more simplistic, romantic primitivism of films like James Cameron's Avatar. Of course, Avatar, which I found immensely enjoyable and visually stunning, also features floating islands. They are, after all, a common theme in science fiction and fantasy literature and art. Probably the best-known example of this kind of fantasy imagery are the paintings of British artist Roger Dean, whose fantastic landscapes included the painting Floating Islands, which clearly helped inspire the visual designers of Avatar's landscapes. Dean's works are probably best known to the public through the album covers of the art-rock band Yes, which some listeners may know from their own record collection, or at least the LP collection of their parents. Thank you. 
That was the opening to the song Roundabout by Yes from their 1971 album Fragile. And in true 1970s fashion, the song goes on for about eight and a half more minutes. Part of the appeal of floating cities and islands in the sky is that they convey a profound sense of wonder and mystery. After all, how the hell do they stay up in the air? In fantasy, explaining how islands in the sky might come to be isn't so difficult, since a wizard did it is a legitimate explanation. But science fiction writers and directors usually need at least a modicum of techno-scientific mumbo-jumbo or visual chicanery to explain how a city or a giant floating airbase can fly. This is how Sigourney Weaver describes the Hallelujah Mountains in the Avatar Pandora featurette. In a dreamlike landscape reminiscent of a Magritte painting, vast magnetic fields coupled with the exotic properties of unobtainium allow the Hallelujah Mountains to float in flux, constantly moving. In the 1920s, Hugo Gernsback of Amazing Stories Renown predicted that cities would float high in the atmosphere thanks to gravity-nullifying rays. Head on over to David Zondi's excellent collection of sites, including Tales of Future Past, at David Zondi, that's David, S-Z-O-N-D-Y, dot com, to see the 1922 illustration of these flying cities in Gernsback's Science and Invention magazine. David has put together an excellent collection of illustrations from pulp magazines and old science fiction futures. You should really check it out. James Blish took the idea of flying cities one step further than Cities in the Cloud in his Cities in Flight series, in which the cities of the Earth, and notably of America's Rust Belt, take flight to the stars, protected by a kind of force field generated by the spin-dizzy device. While the idea may seem a bit strange at first, it is very well executed by Blish, and the books are well worth the read. In this excerpt from Cities in Flight, A Life for the Stars, the protagonist, Chris, is in the city of Scranton as it takes flight for the first time. The noise was horrifying. Chris had never before heard anything even a fraction so loud, and it seemed to go on forever. The press gang boss herded him into a doorway. There's the alert. Duck, all of you. Stand still, Red. There's probably no danger. We just don't know. But something might shake down and fall, so keep your head in. The honking stopped, but in its place, Chris could again hear the humming, now so pervasive that it made his teeth itch in their sockets. The shadow deepened, and out in the bare belt of earth, the seething dust began to leap into the air in feathery plumes almost as tall as ferns. Then the doorway lurched and went askew. Chris grabbed for the frame, and just in time, for a second later, the door jerked the other way, and then back again. Gradually, the quakes became periodic, spacing themselves farther apart in time, and slowly weakening in violence. After the first quake, however, Chris's alarm began to dwindle into amazement for the movements of the ground were puny compared to what was going on before his eyes. The whole city seemed to be rocking heavily, like a ship in a storm. At one instant, the street ended in nothing but sky. At the next, Chris was staring at a wall of sheared earth, its rim looming cliff-like, fifty feet or more above the new margin of the city, and then the blank sky was back again. These huge pitching movements should have brought the whole city down on a roaring avalanche of steel and stone. Instead, only these vague twitchings and shudderings of the ground came through, and even those seemed to be fading away. Now the city was level again, amidst an immense cloud of dust, through which Chris could see the landscape begin to move solemnly past him. The city had stopped rocking, and was now turning slowly. There was no longer even the slightest sensation of movement. The illusion 
that it was the valley that was revolving around the city was irresistible and more than a little dizzying. I can see where the Spindizzy got its name, Chris thought. Wonder if we go round like a top all the time we're in space. How shall we see where we're going then? But now the high rim of the valley was sinking. In a breath, the distant roadbed of the railway embankment was level with the end of the street. Then the lip of the street was at the brow of the mountains, then with the treetops, and then there was nothing but blue sky becoming rapidly darker. Once again, that was from James Lish's 1962 book, A Life for the Stars, in his Cities in Flight series. While Cloud City, Lapida, and the Hallelujah Mountains are the stuff of dreams, there have even been some serious scientific proposals for floating cities, both here on Earth and elsewhere in the solar system, for exploration, colonization, and mining. Buckminster Fuller, inventor of, among other things, the geodesic dome, proposed his Cloud Nine idea, in which giant domes of a mile in diameter or so would serve as floating aerostats housing populations the size of small cities floating freely around the planet. According to Fuller, the dome's lightweight construction and large volumes would allow them to be solar-heated thermal airships whose lift would be imparted by internal air heating of as little as one degree with respect to the external atmosphere. Another pretty far-out idea, but one I really like, is the dark sky station proposed by JP Aerospace. The basic idea is to have a giant floating way station at the edge of the atmosphere from whence even bigger airships will use a combination of lift at the atmospheric edge of space and electronic propulsion to get payloads to orbit. This is from their online prospectus. Balloons have carried people and machines to the edge of space for over 70 years. JP Aerospace is developing the technology to fly a balloon, or more accurately, their relative, the airship, directly to orbit. Flying an airship directly from the ground to orbit is not practical. An airship large enough to reach orbit would not survive the winds near the surface of the Earth. Conversely, an airship that could fly from the ground to upper atmosphere would not be light enough to reach space. The resulting configuration is a three-part architecture for using lighter-than-air vehicles to reach space. The first part is an atmospheric airship. It will travel from the surface of the Earth to 140,000 feet. The vehicle is operated by a crew of three and can be configured for cargo or passengers. This airship is a hybrid vehicle using a combination of buoyancy and aerodynamic lift to fly. It is driven by propellers designed to operate in near vacuum. The second part of the architecture is a suborbital space station. This is a permanent crewed facility parked at 140,000 feet. These facilities, called Dark Sky Stations, DSS, act as the way stations to space. The DSS is the destination of the atmospheric airship and the departure port for the orbital airship. Initially, the DSS will be the construction facility for the large orbital vehicle. The third part of the architecture is an airship dynamic vehicle that flies directly to orbit. In order to utilize the few molecules of gas at extreme altitudes, this craft is big. The initial test vehicle is 6,000 feet, over a mile long. The airship uses buoyancy to climb to 200,000 feet. From there, it uses electric propulsion to slowly accelerate. As it accelerates, it dynamically climbs. Over several days, it reaches orbital velocity. That was from the online prospectus of JP Aerospace. You can find it at jpaerospace.com. While their idea may sound pretty far out, literally and figuratively, check out the super high-altitude balloon models the volunteers at JP Aerospace have launched. These guys are serious. I've talked about Project Daedalus and its reincarnation, Project Icarus, in past installments. The original Project Daedalus was a study undertaken by the British Interplanetary Society between 1973 and 1978, whose goal was to design a plausible, unmanned interstellar probe 
that would travel to Barnard's star some 5.9 light-years away. The probe would use a fusion propulsion system that would accelerate the probe to some 12% of the speed of light and reach Barnard's star within a human lifetime. The original project Daedalus called for floating aerostat mines in Jupiter's atmosphere to mine helium-3, an element which is very rare on Earth, but extremely attractive as a source of fusion fuel in reaction with deuterium, also known as heavy water. Adam Crowell of Project Icarus, which is a current project modernizing the original Project Daedalus, has this to say about the mining of helium-3 in the solar system for a fusion-powered spacecraft. And I'm quoting from an article I found on discovery.com. You can find the link in the Starship Sofa forum. There is a surprising amount of helium-3 in the gas giant planets of the outer solar system, and in the original Project Daedalus report, Bob Parsons suggested mining it via floating robotic factories in the atmosphere of Jupiter. Since then, a different planet has moved to the forefront of gas mining plans because it lacks Jupiter's intense gravity, Saturn's gigantic rings of orbital debris, and is closer than distant Neptune. You guessed it. The best helium-3 supply in the solar system is from the gas mines of Uranus. That the planet which is the butt of so many poor jokes should be relatively rich in methane as well is purely coincidental, but as a mining site it has several advantages. The surface gravity, which is defined by the one-bar pressure level in a gas giant's atmosphere, is 90% that of Earth's, and the speed needed to reach low orbit is lowest of all for the gas giants. Uranus's rings are also high, thin, and not showering the atmosphere below with a hail of meteors, unlike Saturn's. An atmosphere composed of a cold gas mix that is lighter than helium and not much heavier than hydrogen means that hot air ballooning will need to be used. That the oldest technology of flight will find a role supporting the latest, fusion propulsion, has a certain poetic justice. Once again, I was quoting Adam Crowell of Project Icarus from an article on Discovery.com. Hmm, gas mines on Uranus. It's bound to have any classroom in hysterics. But seriously, check out Project Icarus at www.icarus.com. IcarusInterstellar.org. The idea of using floating cities as colonies has also been suggested by NASA scientist and award-winning science fiction writer Jeffrey Landis in a paper titled The Colonization of Venus, published in 2003. In that paper, Landis writes, Since breathable air is a lifting gas, the entire lifting envelope of an aerostat can be breathable gas, allowing the full volume of the aerostat to be habitable volume. For objects the size of cities, this represents an enormous amount of lifting power. A one-kilometer diameter spherical envelope will lift 700,000 tons, two Empire State Buildings. A kilometer diameter envelope would lift six million tons. According to Landis, the upper atmosphere of Venus is a sweet spot that is almost Earth-like in its gravity, its atmospheric pressure and temperature, and the atmosphere also provides important radiation shielding, none of which conditions exist on Mars, which is why he's proposing the colonization of Venus. Of course, Listeners to Starship Sofa will be familiar with Landis and his ideas of floating cities on Venus. They heard Landis's The Sultan of the Clouds, serialized in Starship Sofa number 201 through 203, narrated by Jonathan Dance. Here's an extract from The Sultan of the Clouds. Clouds. 150 million square kilometers of clouds. Billion cubic kilometers of clouds. In the ocean of clouds, the floating cities of Venus are not limited, like terrestrial cities, to two dimensions only, but can float up and down at the whim of the city masters, higher into the bright cold sunlight, down or toward the edges of the hot, murky depths. Clouds. The bark sailed over cloud cathedrals and over cloud mountains, edges recomplicated with cauliflower fractals. We sailed past lairs filled with cloud monsters a kilometer tall, 
with arched necks of clouds stretching forward, threatening and blustering with cloud teeth, cloud-muscled bodies with clawed feet of flickering lightning. The bark was floating now, drifting downward at subsonic speed, trailing its own cloud contrail, which twisted behind us like a scrawl of illegible handwriting. Even the pilot, if not actually fallen silent, had at least slowed down his chatter, letting us soak in the glory of it. Quite something, isn't it? he said. The kingdom of the clouds. Drive some people batty with the immensity of it, or so they say. Cloud happy, they call it here. Never get tired of it myself. No view like the view from a bark to see the clouds. And to prove it, he banked the bark over into a slow turn, circling a cloud pillar that rose from deep down in the haze to tower thousands of meters above our heads. Quite a sight. Quite a sight, I repeated. The pilot monk rolled the bark back and then pointed forward and slightly to the right. There, see it? I didn't know what to see. What? There. I saw it now, a tiny point glistening in the distance. What is it? Hypatia, the jewel of the clouds. As we coasted closer, the city grew. It was an odd sight. The city was a dome, or rather, a dozen glistening domes melted haphazardly together, each one faceted with a million panels of glass. The domes were huge, the smallest nearly a kilometer across, and as the bark glided across the sky, the facets caught the sunlight and sparkled with reflected light. Below the domes, a slender pencil of rough black stretched down toward the cloud base like taffy, delicate as spun glass, terminating in an absurdly tiny bulb of rock that seemed far too small to counterbalance the domes. Beautiful, you think, yes? Like the wonderful jellyfishes of your blue planet's oceans. Can you believe that half a million people live there? The pilot brought us around the city in a grand sweep, showing off, not even bothering to talk, Inside the transparent domes, chains of lakes glittered in green ribbons between boulevards and delicate pavilions. At last he slowed to a stop and then slowly leaked atmosphere into the vacuum vessel that provided the buoyancy. The bark settled down gradually, wallowing from side to side now that the stability given by its forward momentum was gone. Now it floated slightly lower than the counterweight. The counterweight no longer looked small, but loomed above us, a rock the size of Gibraltar. Tiny flyers affixed tow ropes to hard points on the surface of the bark, and slowly we were winched into a hard dock. Welcome to Venus, said the monk. The surface of Venus is a place of crushing pressure and hellish temperature. Rise above it, though, and the pressure eases, the temperature cools. Fifty kilometers above the surface, at the base of the clouds, the temperature is tropical, and the pressure the same as Earth normal. Twenty kilometers above that, the air is thin and polar cold. Drifting between these two levels are the 10,000 floating cities of Venus. A balloon filled with oxygen and nitrogen will float in the heavy air of Venus, and balloons were exactly what the fabled domed cities were. Floating islands on Venus also appear in Episode 8, Waltz for Venus, of Cowboy Bebop, a Japanese animation series which, if you haven't seen it, you really must go out and get. It clearly influenced Firefly. And its music is absolutely fantastic, mostly composed by Yoko Kana and performed by her group The Seatbelts. In Cowboy Bebop, the crew of the spaceship named the Bebop, Spike, Jet, Faye, a little hacker girl who calls herself Edward, and an AI dog called Ein, are bounty hunters. In this excerpt, Spike and Faye take a shuttle to Venus in order to catch a group of hijackers in the act. While on board, they hear about the mysterious Venus disease, which is caused by the floating plants which were used to terraform Venus, and which hold the floating islands shown later in the episode, aloft. Your attention, please. 
station, please. We will soon be arriving on Venus. All passengers, please be aware of the following government health advisory. The floating plants used for terraforming on Venus may cause an allergic reaction in some people. If untreated, this condition can lead to Venus sickness, a potentially fatal illness. Therefore, if symptoms appear, please consult a doctor immediately. Everybody quiet down! Both hands behind your head, all of you! I... I'll give you money! Take the others, but let me go, please! Ow! Hurry, or you'll get the same! Once again, for science fiction lovers, even if you're not a huge fan of Japanese animation, you really should check out Cowboy Bebop, this series. The movie is also very good, but you really should see the series first. I highly recommend it. The music is great. The characters are really well developed throughout the series. And the stories are just plain good science fiction. Not only that, but the scenes all around the solar system are just absolutely fantastic. From orbital casinos to colonies on Mars. And so I'll leave you with an excerpt of Tank the theme song for Cowboy Bebop, composed by Yoko Kano and performed by the Seatbelts. This has been Life, the Universe, and Everything, Reflections on Science, Science Fiction, and Philosophy. I'm Morgan Saletta, signing out. you, Tony. There you go. Morgan, what can I say? Thank you very much. I'll put a link on to Morgan's site. You can pop over there and say hello. Please do. Please ask him to stay around as well. <laughs> Next up is the main fiction, and it's by Gene Wolfe, King Rat. This first came out, this story was first published in Gateways, which was the tour anthology by Elizabeth Ann Hull. You know, it was all to do with the, the Frederick Paul, you know, kind of what's inspired him and, what, you know, the kind of his kind of write as he put out a, an, an anthology in 2010. Well, actually, his wife, Elizabeth, put it out, but it's all to do with kind of Gateways, you know, based on Frederick Paul and his kind of what he's brought to the, the, the kind of the world of science fiction, you know, and how who he helped get away and who's inspired here, or, you know, who's been inspired by Frederick Paul. So do, I'll put a link on the gateways. And if somewhere in the archives, actually it's on Sofa Notes. I interviewed Elizabeth Ann Hull as well for Sofa Notes show. So pop over there, you know, it's still there on the, you know, it's still there in the archives. Go and have a look at that interview and have a listen to that. And just for a little heads up there, just a little sneaky heads up, remember ages ago, Larry Santoro did give it, and this is how I got actually in touch with Larry, you know, and first off, 
it was actually Gene Wolfe said, if I'm getting this right, Larry Santura had a copy of his, you know, he did like a recording, like an adaptation of his Trees My Hat. Now, Larry did this in a play, and we were lucky enough to kind of be allowed to play that on Starship Sova. Well, isn't that story, that's probably going to be the, one of the lead ones, I'm guessing as well, over on Tales to Terrify. Tales to Terrify, with Larry, is doing volume one. Yes, they are putting out a little kind of book for Halloween, a little volume of volume one, to be quite honest. So, And Gene Wolfe's kindly given permission to use that story as well. So, And that story was... <laughs> Larry had to apparently get it, scan it and everything like that, because there is no digital copies around. So how cool is that? Gene Wolf 4, Tales to Terrify. And on Larry's page, over on Larry's, I think it's Larry's his Facebook page, or actually might be the, the Tales to Terrify Facebook page as well, there's photographs when Larry went to, there was like a presentation in honour of Gene Wolf, and there's some great pictures over there. Larry, Larry's mates with Gene Wolf, you know what I mean? And there's Larry next to um, Neil Game and everything like that, smooching around there. So try and check out those. Now, this story is narrated by Matt Cowens. Now, Matt is from down there in New Zealand, and I've just kind of learned all this with the kind of dealing with Matt and, you know, kind of working out. He's been doing some stories for her. But Matt and his wife, Debbie Cowens, have put together this little kind of collection from Catherine Mansfield. Now, Catherine Mansfield is, well, was one of New Zealand's most famous and influential writers. And Matt says on his, on his kind of the, the site, which I'll put a link to, while most of her work is well known, many will be surprised to learn that the accepted versions of the stories are often kind of pale reflections of, of these kind of original manuscripts that of this Catherine Mansfield, kind of one of New Zealand's, you know, inspirational writers there. So they, him and his wife, Matt, and his wife, Debbie, have put together this little kind of collection, which is shown all, you know, and I'll read a little bit of the blurb from it, because I think it's really quite interesting. Mansfield with Monsters is the first time that Mansfield's version of the supernatural has been published in full. A dream that she often spoke of in her correspondence with the cultist Alistair Crowley and American author H.P. Lovecraft. Matt and Debbie Cowens have pieced together recently recovered fragments of her work, recreating Mansfield's best love tales as they were first written, complete with vampires, ghouls and alien monsters. These versions will shock and delight those in a literary community who have always suspected there was more to Mansfield's work than we have led to believe. Like I say, I didn't even know anything. I'm, I'm sure Larry will on Tales to Terrify that. Larry will know all, all the kind about that. But I didn't even know about this Catherine Mansfield. I guess, you know, New Zealand and that. But I'll put a link onto that. So please pop over there, you know, because like I say, Matt's, They've been working on this for quite a while. I think this little collection or this little kind of booklet. So that would be, you know, fantastic. I'll put a link on. Please pop over there. Matt, thank you so much for this narration. So the Starship Sova is very proud to present. King Rat by Gene Wolfe. Well, honey, I saw the elephants and that was the start of it. I'd heard about them, only I'd never seen any before. So I hid and watched them swinging along the street. I counted them, too, counting with chunks of cement when I ran out of fingers. Two tens and three was what it was. Only after the first ten there started to be people, too, keeping in their shadows, just one here and one there, and staying down so you knew they didn't want the spiders to see them. No, they weren't walking fast at all. They had to step over things all the time and go around them, too, and hold on to the tail of the one in front. You know how they do and all that slowed them down. It wasn't hard for the people to keep up at all. 
Well, honey, I should have gone with the last elephant, and I knew it. Only I was scared, and it took me a time to get my guts up. Then I ran from one place to the next one, keeping to the shadows as much as I could. That's how you do. I know I've told you before, but it's how you do, and don't you never forget it. It took me a long time to catch up, but I did, because they went clear out of the city. That was where we lived then, in the city. There had been buildings and houses for us there once, only the spiders broke it. I don't know why, and smashed everything down flat after. Edwards, he knew the name of it, and told me one time, only I don't remember it. It never seemed right to me that the city should have a name like it was a woman. Only Edwards, he had known it when it was still alive, see? So what was just the city to me was Minnie, or whatever the name was, to Edwards. Only she was dead. Well, honey, I'd never been out of the city before, and it scared the shit out of me. I wanted to go back and go back quick, only there were two or three reasons not to. One was that there was so much to see out there, like great big bushes that grew on top of big tall posts. You know what a bush is? That's right, like a broom upside down, only green. A bush is alive too, like grass, only it can't move. Just stay right where it is and grow. I used to cut sticks off them to clean my teeth. Quite a few of us did that. The other one was that the shadows were getting long, you know, honey. Like when lights are turned down and there was only this one light a long ways away. Back then, all of us had just the one light, really. The sun was what everybody called it, and it was way up overhead, way too far for anybody to touch, ever. Nope, not even if I climbed up on something. It was big and bright, and we couldn't turn it off. Or turn it on, either. Back before the spot. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Spiders, people had made these little lights you could shake. That was the way you fed them, and when you'd shaken them enough, you could turn them on to see things, and turn them off, too, when you didn't want the things to see you. I used to have one, only it broke. Well, honey, the sun wasn't like that. Not at all. It turned itself on, and it rolled across the dome so the spiders could see into all the dark places and look for us. Only, when it got to the other side, it went out, and then it was our turn. We could go all around, and they couldn't see us hardly at all unless we lit cook fires which we had to, you see, when we had something that had to be cooked. 
Mostly that was one of us. We killed each other and ate the meat a lot more than we do here, because there wasn't as much to eat there. Nowhere near like here. If you went out looking when there was lots of sunshine, that was light from the big light way up, the spiders would get you, probably. Only if you went out looking when it was dark, somebody else would. If you went out by yourself, it was really, really tough, because it could be five or six of them, sometimes a family or just friends. I got away from that many two or three times, but it was never easy. So that was another reason not to go back. I'd be in strange parts after dark, and it was the way lots of people got jumped. Only the main thing was, I was hungry. It was going to be poison hard to get something to eat back in the city, and probably I wouldn't. And I figured that there had to be food where the elephants were going, or the others wouldn't be following them. I was right, too. Out there, past where the city had been, there was a spider boat. It was this one we're on right now, only you can't ever understand how big it was. It was bigger than the whole city and higher than the dome, and it sparkled everywhere just like broken glass in the sun. Well, sure, honey. If I'd have thought, I would have known you'd never seen broken glass. Only I've seen a lot of it, and it was the thing I thought of when I saw that spider boat. Ever since then, I've been wondering how it looks at night, because it wasn't night yet when I saw it. I bet it looks the way stars do. Only you've never seen them either. There's a place where you can see them. I'll show it to you as soon as I've got the time. Say you and me were out in the grass country and we went to the river, up toward the clean part where there aren't any lizards or not many, anyhow. And say you dipped up some water and threw it in the air so the light hit it. On the outside, this spider boat looks like that, only a million million times bigger and more sparkly. It seemed like it went up forever and spread out bigger than the city, like I said, and the bottom of it was sunk down into the dirt by the weight of the top so I couldn't really see how big it was. And the elephants went in there, up a big bridge that hadn't been smashed at all, still holding each other's tails. You know how they do. They walked so far through the boat that I was ready to quit, and I saw a lot of stuff that looked good anyway. Some did quit. Yeah, elephants will do anything the spiders tell them to do. They're only animals, honey, but they're not just animals either. The river lizards are just animals, and they don't hear the spiders. Neither do the dogs. Back in the city we had dogs, and they could be bad. But we'd catch them and eat them whenever we could, so there wasn't hardly any left. The grass country dogs are bigger and meaner than ours ever were, and trying to kill them is a real good way to get hurt. I saw one bite right through a spear once. That's right, I went in with the elephants and so did the other people. We went quite a ways inside the boat, then through a big door into the grass country. It was dark in there, and I'll tell you I didn't like that one bit. It wasn't because I was scared of the dogs or the lions. I didn't know about either one yet. I wasn't scared of the elephants either. They let us walk real close, keeping in their shadows, so it didn't seem like they were going to do anything much to me. No, it was the people that scared me. See, I figured they'd be hungry. That was pretty much how it was, too. I came on three of them and started talking like I was one of them, hoping they'd be friends, that we could all go looking through the grass for something to eat and water, too. It was a man and two women, and when they saw me and saw the shine of my knife, it wasn't as dark as this in there then, and their eyes had got used to it, they went right along. Not saying we were all together, but talking like it. Then two more came up, and I wasn't too sure, so I backed off a little. After that, the biggest man you ever saw came, and more with him. They hadn't hardly gotten there when they tried to get behind me, and I ran. Two were after me just like a couple of arrows, only we didn't have arrows then. 
Here I've got to stop and go back and tell you about the big man. His name was Kazi, only I never found it out until after I killed him. When I was talking to him, I told him what a nice place I thought he had here, and how I'd bring him three more, all women, from the city tomorrow. It was the sort of stuff I always said when I was trying to get away. Only I could make a real good pitch for it, make it sound like these women were real, and they'd come if I said everything was cool. I didn't think it would go over with him, only it seemed like I ought to try it. Yeah, that's right. Mostly right, anyway. Only, when I saw those guys slipping off, I knew it was time to go. What I didn't know was how fast two of them were. First thing I knew, they were so close I could hear them sucking air. Then I tripped. It was lucky, I guess, because both of them fell over me, only I'd lost my knife when I fell. One stabbed the other one, thinking he was me, and I hid in the grass. Pretty soon the third one came, and they helped the stabbed man up and promised him they wouldn't eat him unless he died. I don't know if he believed them, but I didn't. I hunted around through the grass after that, looking for my knife. It took me a long, long time, and I kept thinking that pretty soon it would be light again. Only it wasn't. And I finally found it. Just before that, I heard a lion roar. He was still roaring off and on when I found it. Sure I do. Heck drew it there for me. Lions have always been lucky for me. Sometimes I think maybe it's lions and me like it's elephants and spiders. You remember when there was this one lioness that was killing us? I said, all right, we've got to kill her, and I want five men brave enough to help me. I sort of hoped all the men would volunteer, you know, but I only got four. The five of us went off anyway, and when we were alone, I told them, okay, we're the lion friends. You're special, all four of you. Stick with me, and nothing bad is going to happen to you, ever. We did the hand grip thing and swore, and off we went. Yeah, you're right, honey. I told you about running away from Kazi, right? And finding my knife in the grass, right? Well, I felt pretty good about things then, only I was still hungry, and it seemed like it would be light soon, and I wouldn't be the only one in sight. Night is worse than day out there in the grass country, only I didn't know that yet. I was sort of cussing my knife inside for being lost so long and making me waste all that time, when I heard something moving through the grass. I stopped right where I was and listened, and after a short while I sort of crouched down. For a long, long time I didn't hear it again. Then I did. It was big, I could tell that, and moving really, really slowly. Only it was so big it couldn't help making some noise when it moved. No, not its feet. It was just pushing the grass to one side that I heard. The grass whispered every time it did that, and there wasn't any way to stop it. At first I thought it was probably an elephant, only by that time I had a pretty good idea of where it was. What direction, I mean. I knew it was close, too. I just didn't know how close. But when I looked in that direction, I couldn't see a thing. Even little elephants are really big, and the dome was getting light by then. I was pretty sure I'd be able to see an elephant, even a little one quite a ways off. After a while, I got a good fix on how far it was, too. And it was close. Really, really close. So I thought it was probably good to eat, and if it came close enough for me to see it, I'd kill it and have something to eat. The big round snout of it came first, and it was just light enough by then for me to see the teeth. Their lips don't cover their teeth right. I hope you don't ever see one so close you can notice that. I jumped, and it charged. It knocked me off my jump, so I fell on the grass, but I bounced up quick and ran before it figured out where I was. That's right, it was a river lizard. The big ones come up out of the water when it gets dark and hunt along the shore if they're really hungry. The little ones don't do it, because they know the big ones will eat them if they catch them. They're a lot like people, those river lizards. 
The thing was, I was close to the river and I hadn't even known it. That's not a good place to be any time, but when it's dark, it's the worst place in the boat. Well, honey, I wanted a drink of water almost as much as I wanted something to eat, but that river water looked dirty and stunk, so I just backtracked it instead. I'd like to say here how smart I was, but the truth was that the thing I was most afraid of was going in circles. If I did that, I'd find myself back with Kazi and those guys. Only I figured that if I followed the river, it would never circle back. What I hadn't figured on was that the water would clear up, but I sure was glad to see it. When I thought about it, I saw that the spiders must pump it out there in the hills and filter it when it gets where it's going, and maybe even boil it or something. Anyway, I had a drink, and it was pretty good. After a while, when I'd walked quite a bit and was getting hot, I had another one, and that was even cooler and better than the first one. By that time, the water was so clear, I could see there weren't any river lizards hanging around in it. There weren't any on the bank, either. So I got in and had a nice swim, like I used to swim in the lake, back home, when it was summer and the weather got hot. That could be pretty dangerous back home, and probably it was dangerous where I was too, only I didn't see any dogs or anything. Those dogs are worse than lions, and don't you forget it. If a lion decides to go for you, she'll come right at you, but... Well, I said she, because it's nearly always the girl lions that do it. Like that one I was telling you about, that me and my lion friends hunted. We found her too, and some younger females with her, and cubs, and one big black-maned male. He just stared at us, but I knew what he was saying. I always do, neatly, with lions. He said, I don't want any trouble, but if you start some, I'll finish it. So I told him we didn't want any either, but one of his girls had killed three of us, and that was the trouble. The other guys, my lion friends, looked at me like I was crazy, but I knew the big male had understood me. He blinked, and I know what that means when a lion does it. The females were snarling a little, and those that had cubs were trying to get them out of the way. I went up to the one we were hunting then, and told her she had to stop killing us, or we'd have to kill her. I said I knew it made her feel young again. I understood that, but it had to stop just the same. So what was it? Stop killing us, or die today? She stared at me, and then she nodded and turned away. That meant it was over. I relaxed, and so did the lions. My friends had their spears and shields up, though. I had to tell them it was over, and we could relax and go home. After a while, one said I had talked to the lioness, only she hadn't never talked to me. I said yes, she did. She promised to stop killing people. That shut them up for a while. Then one said, how do you know she'll keep her promise? And I explained that she was bound to keep it. She was a lion. And she did, too. Fine, let's get back to that. I wasn't trying to get out, just trying to find something to eat. You know about the deer and goats, and the striped ones that are sort of like horses, and they're all good to eat. Only I didn't see any then, and I don't think I could have gotten one if I had. What happened was that the hills got bigger, and there were cliffs, and after I'd walked a long, long way I came to the end, the place where the river started. It ran out of a cliff there, and if you looked careful, you could see a door beside it. A great big door, big enough for a spider. It was painted to look like rock, and a good job, too. Only it wasn't really rock, it was metal, and the spider that had gone through it last hadn't closed it all the way. There was a little crack, like, that I could squeeze through. So I did. And when I had, I was in a tunnel, like underground, only it was in the boat. I knew there'd be spiders, and they'd get me if they could, so I went fast until it opened out, and when it opened out, 
It was a food place, with the boxes and things hung up where you couldn't get at them. You know how they do. It smelled good in there, so I cut open a few boxes. I think it was three, but it was a long time ago and I can't be sure. Could have been four or even five. Finally, I found one that had food in it, the kind we call meal, because we pretty often make a meal of it. I was hungry and ate a lot, and then I was thirsty. I thought I'd run back along that tunnel and go out into the grass country and drink from the river. Only that time I noticed something I had been too scared to see before. You could turn off into a place where a lot of noise was and see the river getting born right there. Big pipes, you know, and water running out of them, all running together until all the water ran out through a hole that I knew had to go out into the grass country. So I could get a drink right there, and I did. I slept and ate some more, and it took me a long time to find my way out of the boat, but I did that too. And when I did, I went back inside and got some really good food to take with me. Why? Well, honey, you'd know if you just think about it. I was all alone in there, but I had friends back in the city. You're always a lot safer if there's people around you that know you. I had some friends, and there was this girl, and I figured I'd bring them all in. So back I went, with the food wrapped up in a kind of paper the spiders have that you can eat. Everybody was gone. Irene, Edwards, all of them. I looked and looked and about got myself killed, only I never did find them. Or find out what happened to them either. Then I found another girl, really young and about starved. I was hungry again myself by then, so I said, Hey, look at all this good stuff I got here. You give me what I want and I'll give you as much of this as you can eat. Naturally, she said I had to give her some food first, and that was when I surprised her. I said, sure, sit down. Here it is, only I get some too. So she did, and ate until I thought she'd bust, and didn't stop until everything was gone. Only I'd been eating too, and I was bigger. I didn't eat as much as she did, but I ate one hell of a lot. There's nothing like sharing with somebody who's about starved to make you eat everything in sight. So then she lay down and everything, and that decided me. I had about decided already, but that nailed it down. I said, you stand up and come with me. I said you had to give me what I wanted, and what I want is for you to come along with me to a place I'm going to show you where you won't ever be hungry again. That last wasn't quite true. We've been hungry a time or three. Only I thought it was true when I said it, so I wasn't lying. Sure, I took her back to the spider boat and brought her in with me. I showed her some food and told her she could stick with me or split. I couldn't watch her all the time and I wasn't going to try. If she split, that was okay. I'd said she could. Only I knew my way around. She'd seen that a couple of times on the way to the boat. And even if she did, because she'd said she did too, a friend with a knife never hurts. She said she'd stick. So then I said, fine, I'm all for that. Now, if we stay here where the food is, pretty soon a spider is going to come along and see we've been eating it and start looking for us. Moving the big boxes and the round things and all this stuff. Maybe he doesn't find us the first time, okay? But the next time, he might bring somebody to help. We'd have to get out, or we're meat. So what I say is, I'm going where the water is. I know where there's plenty of water. Good, clean, cool water that's good for drinking and swimming, too. I don't think they'd come there a lot, and there's no way they could tell we were drinking their water because it's running downhill anyhow. So that's where I'm going. If you're really going to stick, just come along. She did. So I took her out to the grass country, down the river just far enough that we were out of sight of the door. 
Spiders walk quiet, but I had the notion that the door opening was bound to make a noise, and shutting a lot more. I wanted to be close enough to hear them both, but not so close that a spider would see us as soon as it stuck its eyes out. They've got eight eyes. I know you've never been close enough to count them, but I have. It's eight, just like the legs, only some little and some big. Maybe you saw this one coming, but I didn't. Somebody closed that door. We'd found a hole in the rocks that made us pretty safe. If anything wanted to get at us, there was only one way it could. We'd collect dry stuff, dead grass and bushes, and make a fire at the opening. Not a big one, a little one that didn't smoke. It gave us light to see anything trying to get in, and it was something that anything that tried to get in had to dodge to do it. So we were pretty safe in there, only we didn't have a lot of food. We'd got some while the door was still open and piled it in back. That was good, but it didn't last. We tried to find something else, and did sometimes, but what we needed was another way to get back to where the meal was and the rest of it. We looked and looked, but we didn't have any luck with it. Getting in where the water came out would have been great, but it goes too fast. Finally, I told her there had been other people on the grass, lower down where things flattened out. They had come in the way the elephants did, and it was how I'd come in too. Maybe that was still open, or maybe they'd found another way out. So the thing for us to do was find them, stay out of sight, and see what they were doing. She said no. She'd stay right where she was, and I could go scouting, like I said. There were long-legged bugs you could eat if you picked the legs off first and toasted the rest in the fire, and she'd catch them and eat them and maybe find something else. We argued about it for a couple of days, but pretty soon I saw it was no go. If I made her come when she didn't want to, she'd give us away, sure. Or else she'd split when my back was turned. Either one would be a lot worse than leaving her behind, so I said okay. Then she surprised me again. She made me promise that if something got her, or she starved, I'd bury anything that was left and not eat it. I said, have you got a sickness or something? She said no, she just didn't want anybody to eat her. Have you got that one figured yet, honey? Well, don't feel bad. It took me most of the first day, but I got it eventually. We were both hungry, and she was afraid I'd off her and eat her. Only, if I went away by myself, it'd have to be somebody else. I hadn't even been thinking about that, only about finding some way to trap the little deer or goats or whatever they were that were about the only animals we saw there. Maybe after a few more days it would have been different, though. I don't know. If anything more happened the day I left, I don't remember what it was. But something pretty big happened the next day. I was up on a rock and I saw a herd of striped horses running like crazy. There might have been 20 of them, but I couldn't see what was scaring them. Then one went down, and I did. It was a lion, and she'd got one, and so she quit chasing the rest. I went there. You probably think it was a damned fool thing to do, but here's how I figured. She had the horse, and the hungrier she was, the more likely she'd eat that and not chase me. Besides, she couldn't possibly eat the whole thing. She was bound to leave some, and just a little piece of it would hold me for a day or so. Maybe I'd get killed, but it seemed like I was bound to starve if I didn't do something. And this was something. The problem was that I wasn't the only one. Some big birds had seen her kill the striped horse too. Pretty soon, six or eight of them were circling high up, waiting for a turn at the meat. They weren't the worst. Not at all. A dog showed up, and pretty soon, two more. They were thinking about the striped horse, sure, but they were thinking about me, too. I could see it in the way they looked at me, in the way they acted. There weren't nearly as many rocks there as I wanted, 
It was most dirt and grass, but I found a few, and every time I found one I pegged it at one of those dogs. They didn't have the guts to rush me from in front, but they kept trying to get around behind. Pretty soon I found the thing to do was to get close to the lion and her dead horse, only keep my back to them. She didn't want to jump me, she was too busy eating, and she'd start getting nasty any time one of those dogs got close. Finally I stunned one with a rock. It fell down, and when it did, I ran up and stabbed it in the neck. The other two tore into it, which didn't surprise me at all. Pretty soon the lion finished eating and started dragging her horse away. I followed her, not getting too close and watching behind me a lot more than ahead. She dragged it down a rocky slope to a little place where there were slopes or little cliffs all around, and bushes a lot bigger than grass. There were weeds there, way higher than my head, weeds that rattled together. You probably don't believe it, honey, and I don't blame you, but there were. They came in handy, too. When the lion got her horse there, she covered it up with bushes and grass. Some of it was dead stuff she raked together, and some was stuff she tore up herself, not using her paws, but biting the stems. When she finished, she went off into the rocks and drank. I couldn't see what she was doing, but I could hear her, and felt like I'd found a new knife. I wanted water at least as much as I wanted food, and I knew that where I was now, the river was bound to be bad. Probably I should have gone for the striped horse then, but I didn't. I waited for her to come up. She was as pretty a lion as I've ever seen, maybe as pretty as anybody ever has, darker than most of them, with the little black marks on her face you see sometimes. It was a good face, too, good bone under the skin, and she moved sort of like one of those spotted cats. Her feet never made a sound, and it seemed like nothing she did took extra effort. Well, honey, I told her I just wanted one little piece off her horse, and I showed her how big I meant with my hands. I said I'd run off the dogs, which was kind of true, and they'd have taken it all. She agreed with that, so after that, I knew I had a good chance, and I tried even harder. I said I only wanted a piece like I'd showed her, and I'd cut it off and not ruin any more while I was doing it. She could stay and watch if she wanted, only she wouldn't have to because I'd be just as honest with her gone. After I got my piece, I'd cover up her horse just like she had it, and add more cover, I'd cut myself. She could stay and watch that too if she wanted. She said no. It was her kill, and I couldn't have any. I said, you could kill me if you wanted to. Both of us know that. You're stronger than I am, and you can run faster. So why don't you kill me? She said she didn't need to. She never killed more meat than she could eat. Killing too much meat just meant more dogs and more birds. I knew then that she hated the dogs. I could tell from the way she talked about them. So I said I'd kill the dog today. She had seen it, so she had to agree with that. Isn't somebody who kills dogs better than dogs? See, she said she didn't know, but I knew how she felt. So I said I wouldn't ask a reward for what I'd done, but if she gave me the meat I'd asked for, I'd kill another one for her. I'd been looking at the tall weeds, you see, and I'd had an idea. She stared at me for a long time after that, trying to decide if I was honest. Finally, I said I'd be her friend if I could, and I was starving. Wouldn't it make sense to help me? That did it. She let me cut myself a piece, and I did, no bigger than I had told her I'd take. I ate about half of it then and there. No, I didn't cook it. Cooking it would have made it easier to chew, that's the big advantage of cooking as far as I can see, but making a fire would have taken half a day. After that, I went down in the rocks like she had and found a little spring down there. It was good water, and I drank all I could hold. 
When I came back up, I put the grass and bushes back that I had taken off and cut some more and piled them on too. Sometimes she watched me and sometimes she closed her eyes and lay down her head. Do you wonder why I am telling you all these things, honey? It's not because I like reliving the old days. It's not to entertain you either. This history is yours, and you've got to know it and teach it to your kids. You think that kids are far away. I hear their footsteps, many feet, closer all the time. Yeah, I found the door the elephants had used. It wasn't hard. I'll get to that in a minute. First, I've got to tell you that while I piled up brush, I heard a fight behind me. Turning quick, I saw a dog die in the jaws of a young lion. When it was dead, I nodded and thanked him and said it had been a good job. He licked the blood from his lips. Only birds eat dead dogs. Give me that meat, he said. I nodded again, saying he'd earned it, and I gave it to him. He'd never been able to kill a man, he told me as soon as he'd eaten it. You won't kill me either, I told him. But why should you want to? I'll be a friend. We'll have lots of kills. His eyes said he didn't believe me. There's something i got to do first, I told him. It won't take long, and when I finish it, I'll show you a man twice as big as me and give him to you. His eyes got big and I knew I had him. I cut down a tall weed then and lopped it. It was hard and hollow, and cutting it slantwise made a point. We found Kazi and his people after dark on the second day. They'd made a fire and we saw it a long way across the level grass. They saw me and my lion and backed off, all but Kazi. I told the lion that was him. He should have jumped him then, but he hung back and Kazi went for his knife. I hit his wrist with my spear before I drove it in his belly because I was scared it wouldn't work. It worked great, and my lion jumped him. You take him, I told my lion. He's all yours. I'll eat somebody else. Only I didn't have to, and I knew it. They had a little deer on the fire, and I got all I wanted. They didn't have the guts to come close until I told them they could. Well, honey, that's how I got to be king, and it's probably more than a little head like yours can remember. Oh, sure, we found the elephant door, like I said, and it wasn't hard. What I did was keep after this one young one, giving her a bad time. She wasn't big and didn't have the guts of a bull, so I'd hit her with rocks or stick a spear in her, or shoot an arrow after we got those. Keep her miserable, you know. So pretty soon she went back to the door. Elephants aren't like people. They don't ever forget, and she wanted to go home. No, of course not. Once she'd showed us, we killed her and ate her. What do you think? After, we got it open, and that's how we got back in here. The grass country is a good place when the spiders get to putting out traps, though. Safer for you kids. Sure I did. Kazi'd had two wives, and I took them over. Only a river lizard got one by the leg and drowned her. It's how they do. The other one got to giving me a hard time, so we ate her. After that, I remembered your mom and went back for her. Now, I want you to remember all this stuff and think about it before you sleep. You're going to have to teach your own kids how I got to be king and why you're queen, see? I know you think your kids are way far away, but guys see your tits already. You pick a good one. He doesn't have to be big, but he's got to be tough, and he's got to be somebody who'll stick by you. If he isn't, I'll off him if I'm still around. If I'm not, you'll have to off him yourself. Quick. Now you lie down and think about all this before you go to sleep, honey. And there you go. Don't forget, copyright is Mr. Gene Wolfe's. Yes, you don't mess with the big guys, the big, big guns. 
And Matt, thank you so much for a fine narration. And I just want to take, just before we kind of kick on there with the kind of first chapters, I just want to take a little kind of second or two just to say, how good is August Starship Sova? Yes, I'm blowing you on trumpet, man. Give us a break, man. <laughs> we had Kim Stanley Robinson. Then we had Bruce Sterling, Gene Wolfe. And next week, we've got the Adam Roberts story, you know, the trouble with time travel. Oh! <gasps> What a story that is. Man, it is massive. And it's it's narrated by Nick Cam. Nick was the guy who did the Peter Watts Malik. So listen, you're in for a treat next week as well. If you listen to that story, what a brilliant story. A fantastic story. But anyway, we'll get back to first chapters. And this is by Ripley Patton. It is Ghost Hand. Ghost Hand by Ripley Patton. Chapter 1. The New Guy Five minutes into my calc test, I glanced up and caught the new guy staring. He sat across the aisle from me, his eyes locked on my glowy ethereal see-through right hand and the pencil that hovered between my fingers, never quite touching them. I slowly set my pencil down on my desk. His eyes tracked my movements, still staring. I raised my fingers and gave him a cheesy little wave. Normally, that was enough to make people turn away and try not to notice my ghost hand. But not this guy. Instead, he looked up, straight into my eyes with this way too intense gaze. God, what was his problem? So I had PSS of the right hand. Psyche Sansoma was a rare birth defect, but most people had at least heard of it. There was stuff about it all over the internet. And 60 Minutes had done a whole segment on it, for Christ's sake. Besides... Hadn't anyone taught him that staring was rude? I curled my fingers into a fist and flipped him off. He raised his eyebrows and finally looked away, but I didn't miss the smirk that played across his lips as he did. Why were the hot ones always such cocky, self-absorbed douchebags? Unfortunately, there was no denying that he was good-looking. He had dark hair, dark eyes, dark skin, not a tan, but the kind that comes with your DNA, and he definitely had a nice body. He glanced up from his test, caught me appraising him, and smirked even wider than before. I felt the blush rise to my face and picked up my pencil, but after reading the next question four times, I still didn't know what it said. What kind of a jerk comes into a new town and a new school and spends the first day of his calc class trying to make someone else feel like a freak? He was the noob, not me. He was the mid-semester transfer no one knew anything about. I couldn't even remember his name. Seemed like it began with a J, or maybe an M. At least he'd finally turned his attention away from me, his pencil scratching out answers the way mine should have been. Twenty minutes remaining, Mr. G droned from his desk. Great. The test was twenty problems long, and I was only on number five. The clock on the wall behind Mr. G ticked louder and louder as I scribbled down answers. On question seven, my pencil tip snapped, the tiny mouse turd of lead rolling down the incline of my desk and dropping into my lap. I dug out another pencil from the backpack at my feet, and that's when I noticed that my ghost hand felt warm, which was weird. PSS was not temperature sensitive. I'd held my hand over a flame and stuck it in a bucket of ice both times on a dare and never felt a thing. I rolled the new pencil between my warm ghost fingers. Weird or not, I had a test to finish. Ten minutes left, Mr. G said, when I'd only just answered question eight. 
Passion Wainwright, who sat in front of me, got up from her desk and turned in her test. She was done already? Then again, Passion was the best student in the entire senior class. She had to be good at everything because she was the local pastor's daughter. Her parents had named her after the Passion of Christ, this Easter play her church did every year in which Passion always played the Virgin Mary. The part actually fit her pretty well because despite being blonde and skinny and beautiful, guys did not pursue Passion Wainwright. She wore turtlenecks and long pants, even when it was warm, as if her wardrobe were some kind of a do-not-enter sign. She had a permanent parental waiver against changing for gym class, because showing skin and wearing vintage 90s gym shorts was against her religion or something. Most days, I just felt sorry for her, except when she turned in her calc test with 10 minutes to spare. Focus, Olivia, I told myself, but the heat in my fingers was bordering on uncomfortable. I could always write with my other hand. I was ambidextrous. But if I switched, new guy would think he'd made me self-conscious with all his staring. No way was I giving him that satisfaction. I gripped the pencil tighter in my hot little hand and soldiered on. Passion came back, sat down, pulled out her Bible for a little light reading. I flicked a glance at new guy, but he wasn't there. He was turning in his test. I clutched my pencil and tried to answer question nine. I heard the rustle of new guy sitting back down and caught a whiff of his cologne or deodorant, the smell of pine overlaid with a faint hint of smoke. It made me think of campfires, which made me think of how much my ghost hand felt like it was roasting over one. I looked down at it and saw that my fingers were shimmering around the edges. I yanked my hand under my desk, sending my pencil clattering to the floor. It landed in the aisle and rolled toward new guy's desk. He put out a foot, trapping it, and kicked it back my direction, his glance following its progress as it came back to me, bumping up against the thick sole of my boot. His eyes rose up my calf to my thigh, then to my lap, stopping at the spot where I was doing my best to hide my hand under my desk. I followed his gaze, looking down at the pool of blue PSS energy, shapeless and pulsing, writhing at the end of my wrist stump. I looked back up, locking eyes with him. His expression was unreadable, He didn't look surprised or afraid or alarmed. He just looked, his eyes fixed on my whacked-out hand, as if curious to see what it would do next. I gritted my teeth and tried to focus my PSS back into shape. I was not going to be this guy's personal freak show. I could fix this. It was just mind over matter. But it didn't work. If anything, the more I tried, the worse it got, expanding and losing even more definition. The burning sensation grew so intense, I squeezed my eyes shut against it. All around me, I could hear the scrape and shuffle of students getting up and handing in their tests. I bent over my desk, trying to block my hand from view. For a moment, I thought about getting up and running out of class, but someone would see my hand for sure if I did that. Maybe if I took a deep breath and calmed down, it would go back to normal on its own. As if in response to that thought, the pain suddenly eased off. I opened my eyes. New guy was leaning over the edge of his desk, and there seemed to be something wrong with his neck. He kept jerking his head toward passion. What did he want? An introduction to Virgin Mary the hottie? If so, his timing was utter crap. Leave me alone, I mouthed past clenched lips. He shook his head and gave an exaggerated nod toward passion again, rolling his eyes in her direction. This time, 
I turned and looked. Something was crawling up Passion's back. Not just one something. Five somethings. Five elongated, wisp-thin tendrils winding their way up Passion's chair, climbing her shirt, fluttering at the strands of hair that escaped from her ponytail, making a moving, barely perceptible pattern of bluish light on the back of her white turtleneck so faint I could almost convince myself it was an optical illusion. But it wasn't. It was my hand. My five fingers stretched impossibly and rising from under the front of my desk and groping Passion Wainwright. I yanked my wrist toward my body, but it made no difference. I couldn't feel my hand, couldn't control those fingers or call them back. Passion, intent on her Bible reading, shivered as if she felt a draft and absently brushed an undulating tendril away from her neck. The thickest finger, the one in the middle, rose up along her spine, stopping at a spot right between her shoulder blades. It held level for a moment, weaving back and forth like some ghostly snake dancing to the tune of an invisible flute. Then it dipped forward, slipping silently through the thin cotton fabric of Passion's shirt and straight into her back. Passion didn't make a sound as she went limp, her torso gently slanting toward her desk, the tendril of PSS embedded in her back, the only thing holding her up. I didn't make a sound either. Didn't move. Didn't dare. What if moving made it worse? Oh my God, a voice yammered in my head. You think this could get worse? I could feel New Guy's eyes boring into the side of my head. Obviously, he could see my PSS skewering passion. Why didn't he jump up and scream and point? How could he just be sitting there so calmly? I had to get away. But if I bolted, would my PSS come with me or stretch between my wrist and passion like some horrible, incriminating rubber band? What would that do to my hand? What would it do to passion? I had no idea. And before I could figure it out, the bell rang. Ghost Hand is a finished young adult paranormal thriller, and I am currently running a Kickstarter project to fund its publication. With one week left, Ghost Hand is almost fully funded and just needs a few more backers to reach its goal. I hope you will check it out, admire the amazing cover, and consider giving the project your support. <laughs> There you go. Thank you, Ripley. That is it. That is show 251. I hope you enjoyed it. Just, you know, end of wrapping up there. Big thank you to everyone. And if you would be kind enough, you know, don't forget, write some reviews on. Yeah, that's the thing. I want to thank everyone who's wrote reviews for Starships over on iTunes. That really does help, you know. Just kind of, you see a difference in the kind of little, you know, Starships over's little icon. You see it bunch moving its little self up there when you, every review. Up it, up it goes. So big thank you to, you know, to everyone that's done that. And if anyone wants to do that, thank you so much. Don't forget, look out for District of Wonders. We're all kind of tying in the sites there now. We want to make them all kind of, as Joss, you know, I've mentioned this before, ubiquitous and get them all kind of singing from the same hymn sheet. We're going to get the newsletters up and running again as well. So if you want to kind of sign in and, and get some newsletters off about what's happening on the District of Wonders, you know, the whole sites, that would be fantastic. Until next week, and that fantastic story by Adam Roberts. Good night from me. Will our heroes 
survive this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they escape without completely compromising their honor and artistic judgment? Tune in next week for the next exciting installment of Distortion Sofa. Evacuation procedure initiated. Shuttle set for launch. Airlock will be opened in three. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Two, one. This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening.